Hey, Rumcasters, John and I ended up talking Puerto Rican rum for so much time on this episode that we have decided to split it up into two episodes. So what you are getting today is part one of the episode where we're going to dive into kind of the bigger, more traditional producers in Puerto Rican rum. And in the part two episode, which we will release a week from now, we are going to dive into the sort of new wave of interesting craft rum distilleries popping up all over Puerto Rico. So here's part one. Hope you enjoy it. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Rumcast. This is the podcast where we talk all things rum with the people who love and shape it. And sometimes those two people who love it are myself, Will Hookinga, and my co-host, John Gullah, checking in from Miami. John, how are you doing down there? I know you were just um, kind of running around all over the place with yeah. your job due to the impact of Hurricane Ian. How's everything down there? How are you doing? Uh, pretty good in Miami. We were nearly really unscathed with it. But our thoughts are obviously with the people who were affected over on the yeah. west coast of Florida uh, with Hurricane Ian. And quite a few people there have experienced a, a lot. Uh, yeah, so, for sure. And I know we're going to talk a little bit later more about uh, Hurricane Fiona also uh, that affected Puerto Rico. It's just it's so easy to forget about the previous hurricanes when we're so focused on the one that just hit. Right, and, right. Uh, yeah, so we were, we're lucky, uh, Will, that we didn't get it. Uh, I do have family in Puerto Rico, though, that fortunately they're okay. And thankfully, I can say the same for my Fort Myers family as well. Okay, um, great. But yeah, a lot of people are suffering right now from Hurricane Ian and still struggling with, you know, there's a lot still going on in Puerto Rico from Hurricane Fiona. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's a lot of people being affected by that right now. Yeah, well, and, you know, we'd been planning on doing this Guide to Puerto Rican Rum episode for a while now. Um, mm -hmm. which I think may be surprising to some listeners because I think people hear Puerto Rican rum and the first thing they think about is A, Bacardi, right. and B, you know, just like light. Let's be honest, like a lot of people would just say it's boring, whatever kind of rum. Yeah, and a, a lot said, of people in our circles, right? Yes. I think it's a lot of people yeah. in, in the rum enthusiast category that would We're say that. We're pointing the fingers at ourselves. <laughs> but uh, I mean, we've said on the podcast a lot that, you know, we think there's a lot more to Puerto Rican rum than just oh, yeah. that perception. Yeah. You know, we had an episode uh, with Don Q where we learned a lot about their process and all the cool stuff they have going on there, which we're going to talk about them more in a little bit. But um, so, yeah, we'd been planning on doing this for a while as kind of our third Rumcast guide episode. Previously, we, we did Jamaica and Mexico and now Puerto Rico, which I feel like we started very conventionally and it just mm -hmm. like veered all over the place since then. So <laughs> um, kind of keeping things interesting here on the Rumcast. But Anyway, so we'd been discussing this. Obviously, Hurricane Fiona happened. And yeah, I think we we both wanted to do more than just come on the, the podcast and talk about Puerto Rican rum for a little right. bit. Um, so what we're going to do this month is... Uh, we, you know, earlier this year, we started a Patreon for the Rumcast, uh, which is a monthly subscription, basically, where we're putting out bonus episodes. We're doing 
monthly happy hours on Zoom for the members and things like that. And so what we're going to do is take 100% of the uh, income from the Patreon for the month of October and donate that to an organization called Hispanic Federation, which uh, they have specific funds earmarked for Puerto Rico disaster mm-hmm. relief in the wake of Fiona. And they're working with all sorts of you know community assistance programs in Puerto Rico, um, community-based nonprofits and stuff like that that are there on the ground, working with the community providing essential services and things like that. So if you you know want to, to be a part of that with us, you can subscribe on Patreon. Everything from this month is going to go to that. Also, uh, we'll post a link to where we are donating. And if you want to donate independently, that would be incredible mm-hmm. as well. Um, so yeah, really just, you know, we talk so much about how much we love rum and the places it comes from. Uh, so yeah, definitely want to do something to support those places when there are times of need for sure. Yeah. And we hope maybe to highlight some uh, some bottles from Puerto Rico that maybe people will also yeah. go ahead and purchase. And that's all. Of course, that's also helpful uh, in a way to their economy, ultimately. So there's that as well. So definitely. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I, you know, I was reviewing some of my notes from the I, I took a trip to Puerto Rico right before the pandemic. And I remember talking to distilleries there about Hurricane Maria, you know, which Mm -hmm. happened all the way back in 2017. And this was in 2020. And they were still, you know, feeling the effects of that. One of the distilleries I talked to, which we'll talk about this distillery, um, they didn't have power for a a year at the distillery after Hurricane Maria. So. Yeah, we would love to support the the island, the distilleries, the people, because they're uh, it, it's it's an amazing place. That was the first time I had been there and can't wait to go back. Uh, a truly, yeah. truly beautiful place. Uh, amazing people, amazing food, uh, some amazing rum, too. So I'm eager to dive into that today. I hope to get there back there with you at some point. I've still never been. You beat me there, Will, somehow. Yeah, I, somehow. Uh, you're so much closer to I know, me. You I'm have like the a, family I, connections. I, I almost feel like I could swim there, but, so, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I've never, still never been. Well, it's uh, not Cuba, John. It's a little, know, it's a little farther away. It's a little farther Miami away, I know. <laughs> you're thinking, yes. but, um, yeah, so <laughs> kind of what we're going to do here, we're going to talk about as many distilleries as possible that we can. You know, there's, it's, it's interesting, Puerto Rico is in some ways kind of experiencing what the mainland U.S. has in a lot of ways with kind of the craft distillery boom yeah. over the last decade or so. There have been a lot more new distilleries in Puerto Rico popping up. So it's entirely possible there may be some new ones that even we don't know about yet that we miss. But we want to note that uh, some of the major ones and some of the interesting ones that I had the uh, great fortune of, of visiting a few years ago and dive into those. I, I think before we do that, though, I, I think at just a high level kind of defining what is Mm -hmm. Puerto Rican rum is kind of an important thing to establish because, you know, there is some truth to the idea that it's like, oh, it's light bodied rum, but there's, you know, more to that um, as, as we said earlier. So I think one thing that a lot of rum enthusiasts don't realize about Puerto Rico is they, they have defined standards for what something has to like how rum has to be made in order to be called Puerto Rican rum. Mm-hmm. So something that kind of functions similarly to a GI, a GI. but it's mm-hmm. it's it's not literally a GI, similar in some ways. And yeah. there's basically four standards. It has to be produced in Puerto Rico, has to be made from molasses, 
has to come from continuous column distillation, and it has to be aged for a minimum of one year, which is why all of the white quote, quote unquote mm-hmm. white rums you yeah. see from Puerto Rico all have been aged for at least a year, even, you know, Bacardi, Carta Blanca, mm-hmm. you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the first rum mm-hmm. that enters many people's minds uh, <laughs> that I, I don't think a lot of people think of as aged, but those are aged. And then um, obviously the, the, fil- the color is filtered out of those. So right. quick history, because I think this is interesting. The reason why they have these standards in the first place is in 1948, the government in Puerto Rico created something called the Rums of Puerto Rico program. Uh, and it was started basically to promote the industry and also help it maintain quality production standards. And I think the first question that comes to mind for people is like, okay, why, why was the government so interested in the, you know, rum industry of Puerto Rico? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, obviously there could be some tourism dollars it's bringing in and stuff like that, but there's actually more to it. And part of it goes back to something called the rum cover over, which I don't want to get super in the weeds on this because it's, it's very complicated, but At a high level, I think most people know that Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States. Um, So we have that, you know, relationship with them. Um, Puerto Ricans are American citizens um, Mm -hmm. by default. And basically what happened is that when when distilleries produce rum, they have to pay something called excise tax for every proof gallon of, of rum that they produce. And so with Puerto Rican rum, all those excise taxes uh, for rum that they sell in the U.S., the U.S. government takes that money and sends it back to Puerto Rico. And it actually does the same thing with the U.S. Virgin Islands. So like Crucian rum, for example, would also mm-hmm. benefit from something like this. So, And some of that money then can go back to distilleries as subsidies from the Puerto Rican government. So they can use some of that money, you know, for things like infrastructure, you know, whatever um, government revenue wants to go towards. And then, Mm -hmm. like I was saying, some of it goes back to the distilleries. Some of it goes to operate the Runs of Puerto Rico program. So anyway, you can see how the, the Puerto Rican government gets a good deal of money from this cover over. And... One of the things, this is really interesting, I think a lot of people don't know this, is that in during World War II, most, if not all, American whiskey producers basically had to stop making whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, they right. were used for, you know, producing things for the war effort, basically. Right. And so during that time, Americans back home still needed to drink, right? So uh, <laughs> we ended up drinking an enormous amount of Puerto Rican rum. Uh, just if you look at like the sales, the, the exports of Puerto Rican rum during yeah. that time, it, it just like skyrockets during World War II. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Puerto Rico was necessarily forecasting that happening, you know, a world war that would cause them to have to sell incredible amounts of rum. Yeah. And so they depleted a lot of their stocks. And by the end of that period, a lot of what they were sending over was really young, really rough stuff. And it lit like Puerto Rican rum literally got a bad reputation in the mainland United States because of that. And so when the war ended, you know, whiskey production started back up. The sales they were like, shit, what do we do to fix this? Exactly. Like the <laughs> yeah. sales plummeted and they yeah. were like, wow, we like, we can't yeah. let this happen Feel again. Culpable. You know? Yeah, exactly. So that's mm-hmm. when those standards came into play. And all that. Also, looking forward a little bit, because I and you know, I would love to hear more from you. I know you know a lot about this and other rum historians, but as we're going to see here, we're not talking about any of the other islands like Cuba that much, but there's a little bit of interplay. And of course, the politics of that 
coming into, you know, you think during Prohibition, how many Americans went down to Cuba exactly. and enjoyed rum there. And then by the time you get to the 1950s, things are happening there politically that mm-hmm. I think having this uh, bolstered rum program in Puerto Rico was very advantageous to, yeah. to the United States and others. So yeah, I, I also see why it continued. Yeah. As we will soon discuss, uh, Cuban politics definitely impacted the future of Puerto Mm -hmm. Rican's rum scene in a very profound way. So it is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of connections. Um, There's actually there's there's a book I'll recommend when we when we get to our Bacardi section. But uh, we kind of want to go distillery by distillery. And the way Mm -hmm. I think about distilleries in Puerto Rico is there's kind of three categories to me with a few exceptions as always Mm -hmm. there's always exceptions in in the rum world i feel like but (laughs) so there's what i call the big two which is uh, bacardi and distilleria sergues which makes Mm -hmm. don q those are the ones that have been active the longest and sell you know by far the most rum right then you have in the middle something that doesn't really fit anything else which is ron del barilito which i'm sure a lot of our mm-hmm. listeners will be familiar with the reason why i put it in a category by itself is well a it's that brand is actually the oldest continually running brand in puerto rico so don q for example like distillerius areas goes back to the 1800s but the don q brand didn't hit the scene until 1934 Hmm. um the rondel barilito brand goes back to the late 1800s that brand has been sold around the world which is pretty crazy um however they have not distilled anything there since prohibition um and we'll get into you know okay, where does the rum come from and all that? We'll get into that when we talk about Barilito, but that's why I put it in a category by itself. And then Mm. the third category is the new wave of craft distillers, essentially. So just like in the mainland US, we have all these new craft distilleries making rum. You're starting to see the same thing in Puerto Rico in a lot of interesting ways. So I think the best place to start is with those big two because yeah. those are kind of the dominating. Places, yeah. I mean, yeah, they're they're the yeah. ones driving the broad style of Puerto Rican rum, right. essentially. So, shall we start with Distilleria Serias, if you will? Uh, yeah, I think uh, that's a, a wonderful place to start. So, quick history. Um, well, well, we'll start by saying. Obviously, they make Don Q, which we've talked about on the mm-hmm. podcast quite a bit. Mm-hmm. They, they also make several other brands that I'm not sure people know about. Palo Viejo is one. I'm actually, I'm not sure if Palo Viejo is exported to the mainland, but it is extremely popular in Puerto Rico. I've seen it here in my Okay, yeah. yeah. I, I, I could especially see it being sold in places like Miami that probably have, mm-hmm. um, you know, high Puerto Rican population. Because it's, um, like I was saying, it's extremely popular. There's Puerto Ricans will be quick to tell you, and Don Q will be quick to tell you, that um, <laughs> Don Q is the number one selling rum, specifically in Puerto Rico. Right. Obviously, Bacardi far outsells Don Q Everywhere uh, worldwide. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when you are in Puerto Rico, Don Q is the most popular rum. However, I've talked to some Puerto Ricans who have said, actually... They won't tell you this, but Palo Viejo uh, is the most popular rum here because I think Palo, like Don Q is a little more premium than yeah, Palo Viejo. Yeah, um, yeah. So I have no idea if that's true or not. Um, that's uh, yeah. just what I've heard. Have you ever tried it? Oh, you said no, right? Because you hadn't seen it. When I, you went to Puerto Rico, did you get it? I think I had a, uh, a little okay. bit of just the, the white in Puerto Rico, but I honestly, uh-huh. I can't remember anything yeah. to tell you about it. I, I do yeah. know I interviewed... Don Q or Distillerius Arias' 
former master blender. His name's Hiker Soto. Mm-hmm. And if you think it's just like relabeled Don Q, it's not. It's com- it's a completely different blend. Mm-hmm. Um, they take a different approach to it. So it is different. Mm-hmm. It would be fun to do a, a comparison of that. Yeah, I think I might have. Uh, maybe I'll send send you some. You should. Yeah, you should here. pick up a bottle yeah. there. All right. They, they also make uh, another rum called caliche rum and they, they do they do a bunch more actually according to matt petrick's article on distillery series 80 percent of their rum goes to bulk sales so it, wow. it's kind of you know that goes to show just the massive quantity of rum that yeah. they make there because i mean yeah. don q is you know it's everywhere there's a lot of it and it makes up maybe i don't know 10 to 15 percent or something of of what they actually make so pretty crazy. Hmm. So they started in 1865 by Don Juan Serayes. His father came to Puerto Rico from Spain in the 1820s to start a sugar estate. Barilito actually follows the same story where, mm-hmm. you know, there was a previous generation that came to start planting sugarcane and stuff. And yeah. then down, down the road, future generations start a rum distillery. So Don Q enters the picture in 1934, which convenient timing post-prohibition um, right. when they launched that new brand. So I think you, you kind of see a lot of brands launched around that time because mm-hmm. yeah. it was as legal in the U.S. Again. And Vogue. Let's, do, let's, yeah. let's do something new and different exactly. to get people's attention. So, And yeah, uh, Matt's article that I just mentioned has some really great production details of how Don Q makes the run. We also went into that on our Don Q episode a little bit. But just at a high level, like I was saying earlier, a lot of people think, oh, it's Puerto Rican rum. It's just like the lightest rum possible. And then they age it for a little bit and that's it. And that's mm-hmm. really a big misconception. The The general approach, Serious's process, they basically make two styles of rum. Uh, one they call their light rum, which is multi-column still, you know, distilled to around 94.8% ABV, which is like just about the highest you can distill it to and still call it rum. So that is extremely light, um, borderline neutral rum Mm -hmm. and, you know, quick fermentation. But they also do what they call a heavy rum, which is also column still rum, but it's a single column still rather than the super big Mm multi-column still. So that comes off the still at about 75% ABV. And the fermentation is also different. Uh, They do that fermentation for about seven to 10 days. So obviously there's going to be a big difference between those distillates. So they have this light distillate, they have this heavy distillate. And then what they do is they create different blends of the two distillates in different proportions. So maybe one is like 80% light rum, 20% heavy rum. Maybe another one is 50-50. I don't know the exact proportions, but that's the the basic gist of what Mm -hmm, they do. mm -hmm. And so that basically gives them a range of what they call medium rums in between the light and heavy. And so they take those different blends, they age them separately, and then they have all these different rums that they can then blend into their various products. So it's a a pretty fascinating approach to rum. And I, I mentioned talking to Hiker Soto earlier, their former master blender. And one thing that really stuck out to me with him in that conversation was just how much emphasis they put on the age, the aging part of the creative process being what drives the flavor. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about Jamaican rum, for example, you'll hear a lot more emphasis on fermentation driving flavors with with this approach to rum. And I think this is consistent across a lot of the quote unquote Spanish style rums 
is it's that maturation process where they're really honing in their blends and really wanting to pick up the vast majority of their flavor. So mm-hmm. it's um, it's just a different philosophical approach to a lot of other styles of rum. Yeah. Well, you have to imagine if they're coming off with the light light rum at 94 ABV, that mm-hmm. they're going to need that barrel mm-hmm. influence there to give it what it needs, even though it is being exactly. mixed with the heavy. But yeah, that makes total sense. So Exactly. So yeah, I mean, there's a wide range of rums that Don Q makes. We, we won't go into all of them. Um, obviously, they do a white rum they call their Cristal, which is, a, I think it's actually, it's a blend of rums aged one and a half to five years. And then mm-hmm. the color is all filtered out. I didn't realize until just kind of going back and refreshing myself on this, that there were some rums that old in that blend. Hmm. They also have kind of a standard gold rum. And then you get into the rums of theirs that I think you and I are more favorable to, which yeah. they have a seven-year rum, which is, you can you can get it for under $30. And yeah. we've mentioned it before. We both think it's a great value buy, especially for something that's emblematic of this style. Right. Um, not going to be the most complex thing in the world that you sip, but it's, it's quality distillate. Don Q does no additives, so you can be confident it's not sweetened and versatile enough to put in cocktails if you want. And if you just want something easy and uncomplicated that you don't have to think about, um, it works <laughs> fine sipping as well. And then beyond that, they've done some single barrel releases that right. have been really interesting with like sherry cask finishes, vermouth cask finishes. They just released vintage the, releases. Also, the, Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They've done mm-hmm. vintages as well, like mm-hmm. you were saying, that don't have the secondary maturation. Right. And then they just released their cognac cask finish, which yeah. they bottled, I believe, at 48 or 49% ABV, right. which is right around the there. highest mm-hmm. we've seen from them, which is very exciting. Oh, and then the, um, the Grand, Grand Reserva. Hold so, on, I it, have the bottle right here. Grand Reserva, you are correct, sir. Is that the new One. bottle? Uh, it is the new bottle, yes. Okay, yes. Yep. Beautiful bottle. The Grand Beautiful. Reserva. What, what does that say about the about the blend? Uh, so on here it says Añejo XO, by the way. So it does say Añejo on there. An exquisite blend of hand-selected rums from our finest inventories, aged for a minimum of nine years in American white oak and gently influenced over time by our local Caribbean coastal climate. Very well go. stated. And, and uh, we should probably do like we did in our other episodes too about if you're going to pick one from here, yeah. uh, which one are you recommending? I mean, my favorites are any of those single barrel releases. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to me, like those hit a different level of of flavor. And mm-hmm. historically, they've been cheaper than the Grand Reserva. So I, I reach for that. I'm really interested to try the new one. Like I was saying, I don't have that bottle yet, but I would. Right. I am definitely planning to buy that if I see it. Same. Uh, I'm waiting me. for it. I saw the Sherry Cask one, the new Sherry Cask one. Oh, uh, nice. Okay. Just recently, I think it was two weeks ago, I saw it on there, and I was like, "Do you have the con- cognac cask yet?" <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. And he said, "No, no. Check back in a couple of weeks." Uh-huh. And I think I just saw something on their social media account today about it. So I'm I'm going to be heading there this weekend to see if I can find it before you, so I can make nice. you jealous. You'll um, you'll probably find it before me. I would say. <laughs> uh, I I will say that just to to balance out what you said, because I agree that any of those single bear or vintage releases are mm-hmm. really fun. Um, they're harder to find. So yeah. for me, it's the Don Q7. You already mentioned the price and the value of it. And if you're looking for a quintessential Puerto Rican rum, that it's just really hard to beat that. So yeah. that bottle is fantastic. Don't even think twice about it. Grab it. You will be a happy person. 
So with uh, one of the big two out of the way, we should move on to the second one, <laughs> Bacardi. So Bacardi could be its own entire separate yeah. podcast series. Yes. I feel like I feel like you could do yeah. an entire series on the history of Bacardi. So we're g- painting with extremely you know broad strokes here, but just yeah. the very high level background. I think most people are aware because it's still a big part of their marketing and, you know, telling their story and everything. Bacardi did not start in Puerto Rico. It started in Cuba by Don Facundo Bacardi in the 1860s, which Mm -hmm. is really interesting because that's literally right around the time that Destilleria Serias was being started in in Puerto Rico. And one thing that, that is kind of surprising to think about with Bacardi because of how we think about their run now, but um, they started out with, you know, pot stills back then. And it's kind of interesting because when I was in Puerto Rico, I did the Bacardi tour. And it's basically like you, you kind of watch like a Bacardi mini movie, like about yeah. the history. I feel and like it would be Disneyfied in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. then they they take you through what is more like a museum than seeing the actual distillery. And like mm-hmm. the, the it, they don't call it a museum, but it, it kind of looks like one. And right. they have all these like... I don't know if they're replicas or if they're actual stills, but they're like pot stills everywhere. And if you just went in as someone who knows nothing about rum, you would leave that place thinking like, thinking that's what they 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 still use those stills instead of those like extremely large industrial looking machines, uh, you know, that, that you don't, don't go and and tour. But, Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, it's, that's just kind of a, you know, a a fun thing to think about, but obviously, you know, as time went on, they eventually modernized and, and switched over to column distillation. But so they're in Cuba, during this time, around the 1930s, they set up some operations in Mexico and Puerto Rico as well. Over time, they, they set up various operations in other countries. Uh, in addition to those, Spain, like a lot of surprising places. And 1958 is when the distillery in Catano in Puerto Rico that you can visit mm-hmm. today, that's when it opened. And the governor of Puerto Rico at the time proclaimed it. He, he dubbed it the Cathedral of Rum. So it has, wow. if you've ever seen the like Art Deco Bacardi building that's uh, still in Cuba, they basically made a replica of that at this distillery. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, very cool, like that Art Deco style with uh, mm-hmm. Bacardi and big gold letters across the top. So it's it's a landmark for sure. Yeah. So why did Bacardi end up in Puerto Rico? Well, in 1960, that is when the Cuban uh, government, led by Fidel Castro, mm-hmm. they uh, basically nationalized the rum industry. So they seized operations at uh, various distilleries across the country. Uh, at that point, the Bacardi family has fled and they shift all operations to their other facilities around the world so that they can keep making rum. So that's how they ended up Puerto R- uh, in Puerto Rico. And over time, like Puerto Rico became their flagship distillery, right. like where, where the, the, the majority of their distillate comes from. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's where headquarters is now. So it, it's kind of funny to look at the bottles, not funny, but just interesting to look at the mm-hmm. bottles and see, you know, Puerto Rican rum on every bottle of Bacardi. And then a lot of right. them still have some reference to Cuba as well. Right. So it's, right. it's, you know, just kind of an interesting dichotomy there. No, I agree. It's, it is an interesting story and a backstory there. And it's, it's, I mean, we all to some degree have like a knowledge of this, like there's some kind of base knowledge, I think of mm-hmm. Bacardi being associated with Puerto Rico, but somehow Cuba also. Right. right. And, and I just don't think most people beyond again, our small circles, uh, of rum enthusiasts really know enough about that backstory. And I would say if you want to know more about that backstory, there's a really, really good book called yeah. Bacardi and the Long Fight for Cuba. And huh. it's it's the story of the Bacardi family. Um, so it's not specifically 
about rum but obviously rum mm-hmm. is a very big part of the story but it tells you know the story of all the political happenings and mm-hmm. the, the bacardi family was also like certain members were very politically involved in cuba so it's it's a really really fascinating story highly recommend checking out that book if you're interested at all in, in that kind of stuff but on the production side of things their approach is is similar to Distilleria Serias and the way they approach it with, you know, different blends and things like that. So um, obviously there are going to be differences, but, you know, just a huge higher volume, right? Yeah. Yeah. It has to be, even though Serias does make a lot of rum. For sure. I mean, Bacardi is like, you know, making crazy amounts of rum. For sure. And I think the the ubiquitous bottle that that everyone thinks of, I think Mm -hmm. um, the three bottles people think of, like if you talk to someone who's not into rum and you're like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I like rum. There are three bottles that they're going to think of right away. One is Malibu, which is not rum, which is very sad that that's one of the first thing that comes up. Um, The second is Captain Morgan, which again, Mm -hmm. is not really rum. It's a spiced rum, Mm -hmm. not even 40% ABV. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the third bottle is the only one that is actually full-fledged rum, and that's uh, Bacardi Superior Carta Blanca, which is their white rum. So, you know, that's obviously kind of the flagship. They also have a Bacardi Gold, which uh, I think is essentially, I don't know if it's exactly the same, but it's a very similar rum. It's just not filtered. They have a spiced rum as well. And then you get into kind of their core aged range, which is where I feel like the products might start getting a little bit more appealing to some rum enthusiasts. So they have Añejo Cuatro, which is a four-year-old rum. Mm-hmm. They have Reserva Ocho, eight-year-old rum. They have Limitada, which mm-hmm. I don't think there's an age statement on it, but it's it's a, a blend of older rums, and that's kind of like on you know the higher end. Above well, and then the, the ten, right? The Bacardi Diez. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I skipped yeah. over the ten. Yeah. yeah, there's the ten as well, which. 10 years minimum age statement and then the limitado which i'm assuming contains rums older than 10 years old in the blend right Um, but no age statement i think yeah and then i think they have a few other things they do sporadically or you know limited quantities you pulled some of those what were those yeah there was the bacardi 16 uh Mm -hmm. which is a limited edition and even amongst that i saw differences in abv some were 40 some are 45 Mm -hmm. um so i know there's a lot out there that bacardi does as limited editions that it's it's just too numerous to even keep hold of all of the different ones out there um but i know there are there are available and sometimes you know you can find something that is interesting like i said with more a higher abv or a higher age statement on it so yeah that core range that stays consistent i'm fairly certain those are all 80 proof and yeah i the last time i had these actually was at the distillery we did a tasting through all of those and Mm -hmm. i have a natural inclination to just go to don q rums over bacardi rums because just for me personally i feel like what i can get from don q i just prefer right and i also know that don q has no additives there you go that's what i was waiting for yeah yeah yeah, yeah, not well. Not we, always. we know if you've tasted Bacardi, you mm-hmm. know that they're 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 certainly sweeter. Uh, mm-hmm. As you can do an A B comparison with Don Q, it's actually quite interesting, and you can tell the difference right away. But mm-hmm. even if you don't, I mean, you know, anybody who who has drank 
any amount of rum is going to be able to tell that these are sweeter on the sweeter side. And that is because they're adding some amounts of sugar or something. Uh, so, it may not be straight up sugar, right, but there's, right. there's something so, that is there's some additives there that's making it sweeter. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we, we need to just, you know, make sure we state that it's something that is known to us. It may not be known to those in the mainstream. And yeah. that's the only experience with rum that they have. Yeah. Uh, in many cases. So to your point, Will, earlier of like, you know, the, the big three products that that get a lot of attention, mm-hmm. but also those those Bacardi Ochos, they're gaining mm-hmm. some ground. I've seen uh, a good amount of people starting to pick up on those and their, their cask finishes that they have in Bacardi Ocho now with sherry and rye. Mm-hmm. I think the rye one is brand new. So, you know, they're, they're exploring that space because I think people are starting to pick up on it more. And the, the only reservation I have, because I don't think they're terrible, I just think the only reservation I really have is the, the, the additives, which we yeah. know there's going to be additives. The new rye cask finish is bumped up to like 45% ABV, which is really nice to see since most Bacardi offerings, no matter how premium, are going to be that standard 40 ABV. But I mean, it's hard because this conversation always comes up when I talk about rum with people who are outside of the rum circles because they'll ask me, oh, have you had this? Mm-hmm. And you know, you always have to have that. We've talked about this on the podcast, yeah. Will, about like, how do you have that awkward conversation of like, yeah, uh-huh. you know, like, you don't want to stomp on their enthusiasm. Yeah, but exactly. It's tough. And yeah, I've, I've heard... I think of that range that the Ocho is the one to me that is like closest to being somewhat enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do know a lot of Tiki people are big on that rum as kind of a go-to aged, you know, light column still mixing rum. So, and yep. you know, it's, it's relatively inexpensive to, for, for eight year rum. So right. that's kind of the, the overview of the, the core range there. Right. And I want to talk about the super premium stuff just really quickly. And again, oh, we don't okay. have time to go through everything, super but the premium. Yeah, the super premium category. We're not even sure, Will, I think, if they're making these anymore, mm-hmm. if this is still a thing for them. But people see them. I mean, I go to any any liquor store, I'm going to see these yeah. on their like back counter. Like, oh, like, the you know, this is the really good expensive right, right, stuff. Right. Anyone you're going to see, at least in Miami. These are under the Facundo Bacardi Limited line, which is named after the original founder of Bacardi, but notably kind of distances itself from the traditional Bacardi branding. And under that, they have the Paraiso, uh, Neo, Eximo, and I think the Esquisito bottles. They're definitely expensive. They're in the 150-ish dollar and up kind of category that they have. Um, some of them up, you know, in the $300 ranges bottles. And the bottles do look, you know, beautiful. They they spend a lot of time on the detail of how they look. My my quick take on them is they're good rums. They're not bad rums, but they still have added sugar mm-hmm. and they're still 40% ABV. And, and they're still they're, they're very of expensive. <laughs> yes, so you yeah. can do so much better with with you know finding rums that are are less. Like we mentioned, the Don Q Seven is a really good example of something that I think you know you're spending what a tenth of the price on in some cases, yeah. uh, and doing really well. That's not. I don't want to look. I'm not t- turning this into a bashing session for Bacardi. Right. I do think they have a place in the industry to bring people in, but we also want to be very clear with what to expect if yeah. you were to pick up a bottle of any of that off the shelf. So the one thing we have left to discuss here is the Havana Club issue, right? Yes. Uh, this one's I, super interesting to me, Will. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, so I happen to know a person here uh, previous to anything relating to rum, and he happens to be the brand rep for Havana Club, which is a brand that is produced by Bacardi. This is the uh, Bacardi so Havana Club. Yeah. This is the Bacardi Havana Club, yes. We'll, we'll get and... more into what that means exactly. <laughs> but yeah. Right, right. Well, I'm sure that those of you who are not aware are wondering, why would you call a Puerto Rican rum Havana Club? Havana Club. Which Havana is a city in Cuba. This 
mm-hmm. the capital of Cuba. But yeah, so this this Bacardi product, which says Puerto Rican rum on the label uh, next to Havana Club, is out there. It's been out there for a while now, actually. I was yeah, they've been up selling on it. it since the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not new, no. um, but it's gone through a few different iterations. And I guess the latest kind of re-release of that was 2016. And then there's even a new label that just came out. So a yeah. friend of mine in Miami, uh, the brand rep for this uh, named Gio, he sent me just in full clearance or full disclosure. That's the one. Full disclosure. <laughs> full in full disclosure, he sent me this bottle to try. And I will say that upon trying it, you know, it's very pleasant. I, I actually quite like it. It is on the sweeter side, and uh, it's a uh, 43 ABV, so they did mm-hmm. step that up. Beautiful label. But what came out of it, Will, more than anything else, was, wait wait a second. So <laughs> let me dig a little bit more into why this is called Havana Club, because, right. of course, all of our listeners are going to know a different Havana Club right. out there. There is two rums on the shelf. Well, not on the shelf in the United States, right. but there's two rums out there on different shelves called Havana Club, both of them. Right. How can this be? Yeah, I, I think the so there's the Cuban Havana Club, which right. I think has a cult following in the rum yes. world, known as one of the premier daiquiri rums, right? Mm-hmm. And I think everyone you see this every now and then on rum forums or something where someone will be like, "Oh, I I found Havana Club in the U.S. and it's the Bacardi version of Havana Club." Exactly. And, you know, yeah. the person is immediately disappointed to discover they didn't get the actual uh, mm-hmm. quote unquote Havana Club from Cuba, which is available. I mean, it's one of the most popular rums worldwide because it, it's right. available basically everywhere, but the everywhere world. but the U.S. Right? Yeah. So yeah, we dug a little bit more into into why that is and what's going on there but yeah it seems like they're doing a big marketing push around this relabeled uh, new label of havana club that they're putting out there Mm -hmm. Um, i'm not sure if the rum is different or not i'm not sure if geo told you uh, whether it is or not i do think i believe it's the same but i'm not 100 percent sure i'd have to ask him yeah i i I believe i i don't think the old version was 43 percent abv oh Um, yeah you might be right there so that's interesting but it's a very it's a lot more of like a retro style label and they they sent you like a lot of marketing materials that were like very you know aggressively uh, kind of right. going after this being the one true Havana Club. Exactly. Yes, that's what what struck me was all of that saying. Look, they they they're saying we have a case here for mm-hmm. why this is the true Havana Club and not the other one. They're saying now, that in court too. <laughs> they, they are. <laughs> and, and their argument is uh, that the Arechibala family, who started the Havana Club label originally in Cuba way back in 1878, yep. um, that when they fled, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the Bacardi family, but they fled uh, in the 50s after the Fidel Castro government overtook their operation. Mm-hmm. They, they fled and went to Puerto Rico and to the United States, their family, and kept the recipe. So they have the recipe and the trademark initially, at least, of Havana Club with them and they own that yeah but of course the distillery the original distillery is still in cuba and right. under cuban government control so then you have this and kind of the uh, havana club coming right so then yeah. you have this almost like theseus's ship if you know that reference <laughs> uh-huh. of like well which is the true havana club the one that knows the actual recipe that started it or the actual distillery that's been making it there yeah and how does which, that work itself out and yeah which i i don't know like I would imagine that some of the employees who were there before, you know, stayed behind. So, you know, maybe they could continue making the same thing. I'm not sure. I don't have all the details there. But yeah, it's reasonable to assume that that might be the case, although we can't confirm it. Right. Yeah. 
but but the point there also is well do do they actually have a claim it's it's really muddy and we won't go too much into detail with it now but there's some great articles by both uh, Matt and Cocktail Wonk uh, and some other ones Will that you sent me that uh, we can link to yeah Paul Paul Sent did a a good one mm -hmm. for distiller.com as well yeah it really interesting to go into the the in-depth details of like what exactly happened there and how we got to where we are yeah and like to, to drill in a little deeper and 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 one thing about like the havana club brand is another one like the arechabalas were distilling as early as 1878 they yeah. launched the brand in 1934 and ah, it was another okay. mm-hmm. it was a uh, post-prohibition right um mm-hmm. all of these mm-hmm. americans had been coming to cuba to drink rum so it's like why not run havana club imagine that being on shelves in the u.s uh, and all these americans can buy it at home now so yeah the interesting thing to me about the whole like whose trademark is it is like the cuban government takes over the distillery the Arechabala family flees. 1973, they're in the US. They're pretty much out of the rum game. And that's, they basically just decide to let the Havana Club trademark expire because they're not doing anything with it. 1976, Cuba Export, which is basically the government-controlled corporation that runs all the operations, they are like, okay, we'll register Havana Club trademark in the US, even though they can't sell it there because of the embargo. Mm -hmm. And then Another really interesting thing about Havana Club that I didn't know until diving more into this is that they, Cuba Export, they went into a 50-50 partnership with Pernod Ricard, one of the uh, big, you know, spirits conglomerates in 1993. And they were like, hey, we want to, you know, sell more of this rum worldwide, export it more places, but we'd love to have a partner in distribution and marketing, someone to help it sell us. Uh, sell, right. Uh, Basically, just, we'll make the rum, you do you what you need it. to do with it. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Pernod Ricard starts doing that. And then shortly after, the Bacardi family reportedly buys any remaining rights the Arechabala family has related to the Vanna Club brand, mm-hmm, along mm-hmm. with the recipe, allegedly. And mm-hmm. so that's when, in 1996, Bacardi then puts out its own Havana Club label in the U.S., and that starts the big messy lawsuit between Bacardi Pernod Ricard. Mm-hmm. And this is from Paul's article. I'll just say this real quick and then, then we'll be done with this. We'll move on. But so he writes, Bacardi representatives on one side claim that Pernod Ricard and the Cuban government have no rights to the trademark because Havana Club was illegally seized. Bacardi had purchased the rights to use the trademark and sell Havana Club in the U.S. market. Pernod Ricard, in opposition, claims that the trademark was not stolen because the Arechabala family did not renew it. Wow. So what a knot. Yeah, I, this is huh. still being played out in court today. Yeah. So there's still no resolution. I don't know what the resolution will be. I don't even know like how to form an opinion on this because like Yeah. Um yeah, I feel like it requires a lot more legal knowledge and knowledge of uh Cuban history and politics than than I possess, yeah. but that's why the whole Havana Club thing is so confusing basically yeah. the, to some The up. only Right. And the only thing I'll say to kind of finish my thoughts on it is going into that, I I will say the marketing materials worked a tiny bit on me (laughs) because I came into that not knowing any of this and and kind of just a little bit of it, basically, and thinking, you know, Havana Club is in Cuba and that's the real brand and this other one's parading around. It has no cause. Right. Well, now I kind of see at least there is something there. Right. Uh, and whether or not, you know, you want to drink, you know, that is is a different conversation. But at least I understand that there is like a big thing between the two and that there's some, 
I don't know, some amount of maybe legitimacy to either of these. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's that's the biggest thing. The only thing I'll say is Havana Club from the Cuba version, as we mentioned, no additives on that one, uh, is beautiful. I don't we know We think that's no true. additives. Really? That's true. Well, I will tell you this. I did a... a, a comparison when i received this Mm -hmm. and i did the havana club three versus this havana club that that uh was provided Uh and i i will say they're very very close but the havana club three is notably not as sweet as the havana club puerto rico so maybe you're right maybe there is no there is some still additives in the the cuban you're right but the havana club puerto rican version bacardi version is a little sweeter for sure for sure for sure um that doesn't make it um, bad i'm just i'm doing a quick Hydra. So Fat Rum Pirate has it as 08 additives uh, grams per liter. So that's like a very, very small amount in Havana Club right, 3. But that could be from the barrel or, or anything, even though it's filtered. Well, that's right? that's yeah. um, so the range that is usually attributed to possibly just being from the barrel is like 0 to 5. Right. And this is at 8. So it's a little beyond that. It's not 0.08, you were saying? No, no, no. Not, but there's not a decimal. So. Ah, okay, okay. I'll, I'll actually, because sometimes, you know, things change. I brought a bottle of Havana Club 3 back from Spain for my trip. So I have a hydrometer now at home. That's Sweet. how much of a nerd I am. I'll, I'll do a test and I'll come back and edit in an update. Okay. I'll send you some of this and you can do the hydrometer on this as well. Yeah, Yeah, that would would be good. Um, I'm sure it has some because it is sweeter. But I I do want to say, you know, look, not a bad rum. Mm. Uh, It it is, to me, I would far rather drink this than the Bacardi Superior Carta Blanca. Okay. Uh, So just to know that, you know, all of this we're talking about, do your own research if if this is something you feel would be a rum that you would want to have in your bar for mixing or or whatever. All right. I just hear the phrase, do your own research. And I instantly think of like conspiracy theorists, but like here it it actually applies. It's yeah. Do your own research with this. I'm just trying to resist the temptation to like, you know, put my thumb on the scale in any way, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Hey everyone, checking in from the future here. As promised, I did go and did my little home hydrometer test on the Cuban Havana Club 3. And really what I found, combined with a little bit more online research, I have to just say it's it's all pretty inconclusive. So the first place I checked, as I said earlier, was the Fat Rum Pirates hydrometer test listings. His came back with a small amount of some sort of additives. Uh, above the range that would normally be just attributed possibly to just barrel influence. However, I went to uh, Ivar Delat's site, Rum Revelations. He has measurements listed from the Finnish and Swedish governments, and they both measured this rum in 2021, more in that zero to five range, I was saying, which would qualify as it could just be barrel influence Um, like altering the ABV just a tiny bit on measurement. And then um, my measurements, I found the change in ABV, it either measured as 39 or 38. It's very tough to tell with just the naked eye. And so, you know, I either got the same measurement as the Finnish and Swedish governments or the same measurement as Fat Rum Pirate. I'm not personally sure. Also, just after tasting Havana Club, um, you know, refreshing my memory on it. it. It doesn't drink like a sweet rum to me. It's it's pretty dry. Uh, I would not have guessed the rum has additives in it. And I, Havana Club on their website actually has a nutritional information section that lists nutrition facts for their various bottlings. And this bottle I have, which is the 
40% ABV version. It, it does say on it, it has an ingredients list and it says rum, parentheses, Cuban sugar cane distillate, water, Cuban cane sugar, and color. So it lists Cuban cane sugar separate from rum in the ingredients list. And then in the nutrition facts information, it, um, it has 0.1 grams sugar per 30 milliliter dose. So, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure what to make of all this. Um, you know, you can find all this info online, but I would just say it does not drink like a sweet rum to me. And I don't have conclusive enough information to actually say, you know, whether this rum has something added to it or not. So take all that for what you will, but don't just assume that 100% yes, something is added to this rum. I'm not confident enough to say that, but just wanted to share that update with all of you. Now we'll go back to the show. Okay, we've made it right. through the big two. And now we need to talk about what I think is one of the most interesting stories in Puerto Rican rum, which is Ron Del Barilito. So yes. Ron Del Barilito, it comes from a place called Hacienda Santa Ana, uh, which originally was a sugar estate, it was founded by the Fernandez family, whose name is still on the bottle. And as I said other, uh, earlier, no other rum brand still produced in Puerto Rico has been around as long as Rondel Barilito has. And fun fact here, Pedro Fernandez, who was the guy who or originally started it back in the 1800s, mm -hmm. he attended the same engineering school in Paris as Gustave Eiffel and Andre Michelin. Can you guess what Gustave Eiffel and Andre Michelin did, John? I, I think I probably can. I, uh, Gustave Eiffel is the architect for the Eiffel Tower. Correct. Andre Michelin makes tires. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. And puts out restaurant guides. That was early. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's right. Michelin stars. Yeah. yeah so I, I, I just thought that was interesting that uh, they weren't at the school at the same time. But yeah, right. Eiffel Tower, Michelin tires, Rondel Barilito rum, uh, <laughs> all, all <laughs> you know, started from the same place. So anyway... The kind of story is that Pedro wants to make something akin to cognac um, in Puerto Rico. He, he became familiar with cognac while he was in France. Mm -hmm. So he brings back some cognac stills and sets out to make rum at Hacienda Santa Ana, which he does. Prohibition hits in 1917, so they can't make rum anymore. They start making a medicinal rubbing alcohol. Prohibition eventually ends. And Pedro's son, Edmundo, has to figure out what to do now. And the interesting conundrum here is that, obviously, during these years, they couldn't make any rum. So they didn't have any that was aged the right amount for what they traditionally re uh, released as Rondel Barilito. So mm -hmm. he decided to do two things. One, he, he decided to start sourcing distillate instead of distilling anymore at Hacienda Santa Ana. And two, he created uh, what became the two-star blend of Rondel Barilito. So I know everyone sees Rondel Barilito three-star in the store. The three-star thing isn't like some new marketing that was done in you know the last century. That's mm -hmm. how it was always sold because the star system was inspired from cognac. And right. as I said, Pedro Fernandez wanted to do something like cognac. So basically, the two-star is just a younger blend than the original three star. And so now that they had that, they could release something sooner 
and not have people mm-hmm. be like, oh, why isn't this the same? You know, well, it's the two-star blend. It's a little mm-hmm. cheaper, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so things basically continued as they always did from there until 2017. It was a family-run business. They went through two more generations after Edmundo. Edmundo, by the way, his name is the one that's on the bottle still. Um, but you'll see Pedro's initials. I, I believe there's still like a PF on the, the bottle. So those are the two guys that are memorialized on the labeling. So everything goes as is until 2017. That is when the Fernandez family decides to sell Rondel Barilito to uh, a man named Joaquin Bacardi, <laughs> along with a small ownership group. Because um, if that wasn't going to get confusing now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> the, the key distinction to make here is that this was a person who is a member of the Bacardi family. The Bacardi family, by the way, is very large. Um, yeah. There are a lot of Bacardis who are tied to the Bacardi brand. However, it was not the Bacardi company that was buying Rondel Barilito, at least according to everything I've been told, unless there's some mm-hmm. kind of like backdoor stuff going on. But um, <laughs> I can't assume that that's happening. Yeah. So anyway, Joaquin Bacardi acquires the company and went into it pledging not to make any changes, you know, wanted to preserve the way they did things. He brings on a man named Luis Planas as Master Blender, who was formerly a Master Blender at Bacardi. He now consults. His name will come up with some of these other distilleries. Mm -hmm. Um, Joaquin's son, Guillermo, is apprenticing under Luis, and his other son, Eduardo, is running sales and marketing for them. So basically, they come in. According to them, they don't change anything about how Rondel Barilito is made. They invest a bunch of money. They open this uh, really cool new visitor center in 2019. And that's where Barilito is today. Now, they've done a few more things we'll get to in a second. But I think the big thing to address here is the key question on everyone's mind, John, Mm -hmm. which some Mm -hmm. people are out there wondering right now, thinking, isn't Rondel Barilito a spiced rum? No. Is that your final answer? Yes. But, obviously, <laughs> but, I know where you're dot, going dot, with dot. this. <laughs> but, so, this there's is, some things going on in there. This is the interesting thing about Rondel Barilito, and somewhat confusing, but also, yeah. I think, part of what makes it unique. So, Rondel Barilito, as I was saying, it is the distillate is sourced, right? So they source raw, unaged rum, and then they make something with it that they call macerations. Now, according to Rondel Barilito, this is something that literally has been done since Pedro Fernandez started this. This was like a process and recipe that he came up with and has Mm -hmm. been, you know, gone down through generations of the Fernandez family and that they finally wrote down and transferred to uh, the new ownership group when, when that time came. But Basically, what they do is they have these things called macerations. Um, Mm -hmm. A maceration, they take the unaged rum, and then they also take some kind of fruit or dried fruit or spice, and they put that in the unaged rum, and they leave it to macerate. So when you go to their facility, and they'll show you all of this and tell you all of this, by the way. Um, it's, It's not on their label, but like they're proud of this process. They think it's what makes them special. So... I agree. You you go there and they have this room and there's these tanks that are made of American oak. They're about six feet high, maybe. And in each of those tanks, they do individual macerations. So they're not taking like a big mix of 20 different things and macerating it. They're taking like, let's say 
um, let's say one of the things is pineapple. So they'll have mm-hmm. a pineapple maceration going and then maybe mm-hmm. they have like a banana maceration going. And I don't know if those are the fruits they use or not. Um, they don't yep. reveal exactly what they are or exactly how many. They do say it's over 20. So they do these individual macerations and then they combine them in specific proportions in another oak tank that is also in the room that is much larger than all the others. So they have this kind of like mother liquid that they make from all these different macerations. So they have that. They have their raw unaged rum. When they go to fill a barrel, the maceration liquid ends up Mm -hmm. making less than two and a half percent of the total liquid in the barrel. So essentially what you have is you have a combination of unaged rum, a small amount of this maceration, again, is going to make up less than two and a half percent of the volume of liquid in the barrel. And then another interesting thing they do is they proof all the way down before they go into the barrel, which is very uncommon. I think Mm -hmm. basically nobody does that. And the reason that they like philosophically decided to do that according to them is because they wanted everything that goes into the bottle to be aged. So as opposed to aging something, taking it out and then proofing it down right. with unaged water, all the water that proofs it down ages with the spirit. So mm-hmm. kind of an interesting approach. And then yeah. the final piece of the puzzle is that all the barrels are ex Oloroso sherry casks. So this isn't like a sherry cask finished rum. It's 100% aged sherry casks. They don't use, you know, use bourbon barrels or whatever. So that's essentially Ronda Barlito. Now, they are adamant that they are not a spiced rum. And I understand where they're coming from. I also understand when people are like, well, it's a rum with fruits and spices added in some way, isn't that a spiced rum? So it's a really tricky, you know, kind of thing to uh, decide how how you want yeah. to define it. To me, it's it's just, it's Rondo Barilito, right? That's what it is. Um, yeah. it, it doesn't feel right to me to put that in the same category as something like Captain Morgan, for example. Right. So right. I totally see where they're coming from. Um, I also see rum enthusiasts wanting to know, like, this is rum, but there's, you know... There, there is stuff other is stuff done to it outside is, of the natural exactly process. exactly yeah. so mm-hmm. and again barilito like i don't think they're trying to hide that aspect of it like it's part of the tour when they show you and right. they've spoken about it in interviews and stuff since yeah. the the acquisition i think i think when the acquisition happened mm-hmm. like they wanted to be more transparent about that process um yeah i think before it was just kind of like well that's the way we do things you know and we're just doing our thing whatever but you know this is right. just how we do it. So, in, in other words, it didn't occur to them that that would be something that people would have a quibble yeah. with. Yeah. Um, I, whereas I so. now, I think they're they're at least aware of that and are not trying to be uh, hiding it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, to what you mentioned earlier, it's not anywhere on the bottle, and unless you yeah. really go looking for it, you won't know. Right. Exactly. So there, there's this kind of like like you said, it's a very unique situation with it. Mm-hmm. I still I agree with you. I. I categorically would not put this in with other spiced rum but i also kind of just want want to know i would love to see in the paragraph of stuff on the back of their label that it said this yeah i would be a happy man if that happened i Um, I agree yeah and it's like to me the first time i had this rum 
you can tell that there's something different about it. But to me, like the biggest thing I get from it is that sherry cask influence. Mm -hmm, I don't, mm -hmm. it it doesn't necessarily hit me as like, oh, this tastes like a rum with additives, you know, or like this tastes like a rum with like fruit flavor added. I don't get anything like that. Very, very subtle. Yeah. Yeah. I I do get the sherry influence. And then I also get some kind of a weird, uh, not weird, but smokiness or... Mm. Like I've all, every time I drink it, I know it. This is like one of the rums that I know immediately. Like mm-hmm. I can do a blind tasting with yep. it and be like, ah, yes, yep. got that one. That's Barilito. Um, because there's this like smoky element to it. And by smoky, I don't mean like mezcal mm-hmm. uh, or something like that. It's just this light something there that may, I guess it's this process that they do that somehow churns out whatever that flavor is that I'm getting off of there. Um, and yeah, it did, it, it, like, I almost didn't believe it at first when I heard, like, that's what they're doing in Master yeah, of Fruits. Yeah. Like, cause I'm like, oh, it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't ring like that to me mm-hmm. when I, when I taste it. It's, it's a unique product. It's one that I still, I love this. I love Barrelito. You're it, not it's afraid to say it. No, it'll always be in my bar. Uh, yeah. I, so. It's, it's one for me. It's, it's, the price has gone up in recent years for the three star to where it's not something that like I want to buy all the time. But I I enjoy this rum, especially like if I'm in Puerto Rico. Um, mm-hmm. It's and it's it's like it's beloved in Puerto Rico, by the way. I, I think wow. um, I for a lot of times it was thought of, you know, it's kind of like a best kept secret. I've talked to a lot of Puerto Ricans who just like revere Rondo Barilito. So, yeah, well, I guess um, my Puerto Rican side or yeah, maybe so. is in line with that. Um, and yeah, just to kind of discuss the, the lineup and another thing about the Sherry cast that's really cool from going on the tour there, they like, they have an on-site Cooper who's there, you know, cause sometimes they need to repair casks or, you know, yeah. the ones they get in, they need to do stuff to. And, right. um, the guy who's their Cooper has been working there since like the fifties. Wow. And yeah, it's just, I don't know, there's something about on-site Cooperage that is like just, uh, mm-hmm. very like romantic and, and fun to me when I see that. So, yeah. but speaking about like the lineup they have, the flagship bottle that you've probably had, um, if you've had this rum, is the Three Star. Uh, that is a blend of rums aged six to ten years. Again, 100% in the sherry casks and 43% ABV. So a little bump in proof, which is always mm-hmm. nice. The Two Star is the other one we mentioned earlier. That one, it's just a younger blend, essentially. So it's three to five years, same ABV, same aging, same everything. Yeah, just, just younger. a younger blend. Mm-hmm. So I think that one, they market as a little bit more for cocktails and things like that. But yeah, also a fine introduction to the product. Not as not as uh, distributed as widely as the three star, but you mm-hmm. can find it in some places. And as I was saying earlier, like for the vast majority of their history post-prohibition, those were the only two rums they sold. After the acquisition, one of the funny things that they discovered Again, you know, according to the people who told me this from Barilito, mm-hmm. uh, they discovered that there were a ton of barrels that were far older than 10 years in the aging warehouse. And Luis Planas, who was the master blender who came in, he was kind of like, you know, why do you have all this old rum when you don't sell anything over 10 years? Right. And the Fernandez family is basically like, you know, some years we uh, just didn't sell as much and you know we didn't want to just bottle it so it just you know sat here or whatever <laughs> i think yeah. they the way they positioned it was that the Fer- fernandez family had just kind of you know a very laid back uh yeah. approach to they're like eh, the business it's a rainy know? day rum huh. it is what it is yeah. uh you know um so they had a lot of aged stocks and like when i walked through the aging warehouse i saw barrels that were 
over 30 years old in there, according to the years that were written on them. And judging by how they tasted, I would guess that they were genuinely that old. So basically what they decided to do is to do some limited blends that are far older. So they did a four-star, which they called the Edición de la Hacienda, which is only sold at the distillery. Mm -hmm. That is a blend of rums age 15 to 20 years, same 43% ABV, And then they also did one they called Five Stars, which is the Reserva Suprema. And that that was like even more limited than the Four Star. Um, Mm -hmm. I actually, I don't even know if they still have this for sale or not. Um, Maybe they do, but it's it's a blend of rums age 20 to 35 years old Mm -hmm. and 43% ABV. I think the only place you can get that. Oh, do a a couple couple places. places here have it? Yeah, I know okay. a couple places in Miami uh, that that are that are stocking it. It's way up high on a shelf. It's way up uh, high in price too, <laughs> and it's way up high in price. You got yeah, it. yeah you got a pair of pity penny, pretty penny for that one. I want to say it's over five hundred dollars. I don't remember. Oh, the... try try fifteen hundred. Oh wow, okay, yeah. So I um I was able to try all of those at the distillery, and I would say. You know, obviously, if you're going to pay that much for a rum, it's because you view it as like a collector's item. It's it's certainly taste wise, not, you know, a thousand dollars better than rums that are only a few hundred dollars. Yeah, obviously, it's incredibly rare and incredibly limited. Right. I actually of all the ones I tried, I thought the four star was the best. Um, I'm right with you. I preferred that to the five star. I have had a chance to try both of these as well. And mm-hmm. although I think the five star is an experience that's worth having, like, you know, I, I, I don't need a bottle, but I, I loved having a sip of it. It is really good. The four star to me outdoes it. Yeah, I, I felt I, the same I, way. I love the four star. And if we do go, Will, to uh, to Puerto Rico, I may have to b- bring a bottle of that home. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's the only <laughs> place to do it. All right, everyone, that is the end of part one. As I said earlier, next week we will release part two where we dive into the many very interesting craft distilleries around Puerto Rico right now. This is actually maybe some of my favorite stories to tell and and details and things came up in this. So I'm excited for you to hear that. So check back next week. And also remember, if you would like to donate to Hurricane Fiona Relief, check the show notes. Uh, We have a link to the organization we will be contributing to there. And yeah, thank you for listening and for all of your support. We appreciate it.